welcome to Blue Zones Revisited, the podcast that takes another look at science, society, and longevity around the world. Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Simon. And welcome to the final episode of Blue Zones Revisited. The final episode of the Netflix series, Live to 100, that we'll be discussing today starts with Dan Butner telling a story about the man who changed his views of the Blue Zones, Stamatis Moreatis. And this is a story that we already heard in the Icaria chapter of the Blue Zones book. Moriartis didn't start exercising. He didn't do much of anything different, Butner tells us. All he did was change his environment. And that's kind of the topic of today's episode, environmental change. He tells us that he's a big believer that if you're overweight and unwell in America, it's probably not your fault, recounting how the nation has engineered most of the physical activity out of the lives of its citizens. And Simon, I know this is a particular interest of yours. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in urban planning. I'm traveling around a lot, you see a lot of different shaped cities, and we've lived in a few different places as well. And yes, especially in the US, I found that going around as a pedestrian or mm. even you know trying to use public transport and stuff, it's not very convenient. Seems like even on the West Coast, where I've heard it's better, things are very set up for cars. Yes, absolutely. Spend a lot of time, you know, walking down the sides of highways trying to get to your destination trying to find places to cross, etc. It doesn't make it very appealing to be out and walking around and being healthy. Certainly not, no. Mm. And we'll leave some links to videos and talks about public transport, both in the US and in other places as well, as well as pedestrian environments. Absolutely. And since we've been traveling, we've also come across, um, you know, a bunch of YouTube channels and stuff as well Mm. on this sort of urban planning stuff, which I think is really interesting, gives insights into the way cities are designed and how they've been designed to be car centric. Yeah. And how the space that we live in dramatically impacts our lives Mm. in a very, I mean, we often think about cars impacting our lives in terms of, you know, releasing pollutants into the air, which is absolutely true, as well as the noise pollution you may be hearing in the background right now. But in addition to that, it also has these flow-on effects of reducing our physical activity. So Butner's goal then is to shape the environment differently. And I couldn't agree more. Yeah, absolutely. Just because you have a car and you're not walking more doesn't mean you can't make that up in different activity. But certainly that incidental walking is very handy in keeping you healthy. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Butner has mentioned a few times the importance of incidental activity. And that's something I actually agree with him on very strongly. And so this episode is trying to achieve something that seems to go well beyond that kind of individualistic view that most of the other episodes and indeed the Blue Zones book and website seem to have had a focus on. So this one got me really excited, I have to say. So now we get to the meat of things in the episode, or as Butner would probably prefer, the beans of things. I was going to say, are we moving on from that and just going straight back to diet? No! Um, We have a summary now of all of the tips and tricks that we've encountered throughout the series. And at this point, I'd actually like to address one of the comments that we've had on this podcast. To roughly summarise, this listener seemed to hope that Blue Zones Revisited would be more of an upbeat listen, with tips on extending your life 
rather than the critical re-evaluation of Blue Zone studies and associated companies that I think the title more suggests. And I can absolutely understand that perspective. Tips and tricks are certainly more attractive and at least on the surface level appear easier to implement than the often large shifts in perspective at the individual level or even more onerously the large shifts in environment, politics and economics that are needed at a social level to bring about real change. But I think there's a lot of issues with providing tips and tricks. As we've demonstrated throughout the series, in isolation they often don't work or worse can actually backfire. For instance, as we discussed in the last episode, loading up on calcium without considering the other nutrients that you need to get the most out of that can actually be very unhealthy for you. And as Butner himself illustrates, even a really simple tip that's easy to implement for a day or two, like drinking water, long-term can be unsustainable unless it's accompanied by a really in-depth understanding and internalization of those benefits, which is, I think, what we're trying to do in this podcast. So with that being said, let's review the summary of tips and tricks that are provided in the final episode of the Live to 100 series. First up, we have the mega category of... Move naturally. Yes, so doing things by hand, gardening, walking, and then we have... Outlook. So this is unwinding each day to get rid of stress and inflammation, being part of a faith-based community and having vocabulary like ikigai or plan de vida to express purpose. Then there's... Eat wisely. Yes. So we do come back to that. This is, in Butner's view, a plant-based diet, including wine and moderation. So the harahachibu. Notice that we have wine, but we don't mention the goat's milk again. Like, that just seems to have dropped off the planet since we're talking about getting rid of animal products. Or the teetotalers in California. Yes, exactly. And then we have... Connect. So this is the final one. Connect represents putting family first, partnership, and finding the right tribe. And visually, each of these four mega categories is represented in the Netflix episode as a quarter of a whole. But Butner estimates that connect actually represents about 50% of the longevity equation that we discussed back in episode one. Oh, that's very interesting. So he's saying more than anything else, it's community that... Yes, Yes, exactly. Mm. And that is, of course, something that's much harder to depict visually than what food is, for instance. Certainly not selling community or websites, beans and honey. It's hard to put community into a tin and sell it, I agree. (laughs) So Butner says, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that these common denominators of all five blue zones, they work. Wow, that's... Not a scientific approach. Not only that, but it's surely a gross exaggeration. We know, for instance, that wine is expressly not consumed in one of the five blue zones. In describing the eat wisely category, he says that beans are the cornerstone of every longevity diet in the world. But I don't recall anyone mentioning beans in Okinawa. And where has the sweet potato that was used as the title card of the entire series on Netflix gone? I guess they thought that it wasn't attractive to have beans as the visual tagline for the show? 
In addition to this, even on the Blue Zones website, they explicitly said that the information on alcohol is shaky at best and yes. you know not actually good advice. Mm-hmm. Yet, despite this typical overblown explanation and the few quibbles we might have with some of particularly the dietary advice, I do think that there are some useful lessons here. And the weighting that he's given to putting family first, partnership and finding the right tribe even though we've had some problems with how he defines right tribe, there are useful lessons in this. And with these lessons in hand, back in 2009, Butner spearheaded a project in Albert Lee, Minnesota, a city of around 18,000 people. And this, it seems, is where the true vitality test, similar, I imagine, to the vitality compass test that I took back in episode two, came from. So how did they implement this? They started with creating moai like in Okinawa. But rather than grassroots community groups who pull their resources to help one another and gather to bond over mutual interests, this was a top-down assignment of people into groups with sponsored t-shirts encouraging them to take walks together. Kind of reminds me of the Awasat TV show where they try to lose weight. The Biggest Loser. Biggest Loser. And they did it in a specific town in Australia where they tried to get everyone in the town on board. That's right. That mm. that did happen. And that, I think, ended pretty badly too. Mm. I say too, assuming that this is not going to go anywhere. <laughs> well, we don't know how this is going to work out yet, right? At least yeah. at this point in the episode. At least you don't. I I have looked into this. But you raise an interesting point because certainly the biggest loser, I'm not sure about that particular town, but on an individual level has been found to be very, very detrimental for people's health. So even though this is all very artificial with the sponsored t-shirts and the top-down rather than the grassroots approach, and I would say once again this is where Butner is attempting to take a rather socialist kind of or even you know communist type well, of approach not even really because it sounds like it's top down and sort of trying to come in as an outsider and then impose his ideas on mm-hmm. everybody and organize it himself sure that's an authoritarian rather than, yeah rather than growing it as a community project sure but my point is that the the whole concept of the moai mm. is that you are supposed to pull your resources rather than seek corporate sponsorship absolutely mm. yeah so even though there's some strong differences to the mm. point that I don't think these groups should be named Moai at all. I mean, this is, I think, cultural appropriation. <laughs> it is changing the meaning of things. It's, it's problematic. But regardless, a few years later, Butner reports that news reports found nearly half of all these friendships last which I think is pretty impressive for such an artificially created group. Although I do question, why was Good Morning America and not the research team doing this follow-up? Yeah. This is only a few years later. How long did they actually go in and do this project for? Because as we know, health interventions, especially on this scale, when you're trying to change the environment, if you're trying to improve people's health by changing the environment and 50% of that equation is their connections with each other in society, that's a long-term investment, right? They also set up volunteer groups like in Loma Linda. Now, a lot of the volunteer groups in Loma Linda were to evangelize the Adventist faith. I assume that they chose a different approach in this town, but they also brought in food policies, which again comes back to Loma Linda. They tried to emulate healthy supermarkets as well as implementing what they describe as 
healthy restaurants. Now, I know we've had a lot of fun complaining about how much food is focused upon in this documentary, despite many of the experts featured in it saying that it's not one of the most important factors. But for once, I actually wanted to hear more about how this healthy supermarket and healthy restaurant program was achieved. Yet this time, for once, they don't linger on the topic of food and we don't get to find out. Then the next step was building bike lanes putting walking paths around the lake, sidewalks so that everybody could walk around town. This is really an enormous change in infrastructure. As you were describing before, a lot of the places that we visited in the United States don't even have a proper sidewalk for people to walk along. So this is a huge change and a very costly one too. It, it required a lot of investment. I can imagine. And I want to know more about that. Like what was their involvement with the town? You know, obviously they needed civic planning for this kind of things. Yeah. If this was an investment, were they looking for a return on investment or was this purely run by... You know, yeah, like who, who footed the bill who for this? Who footed the bill, that's mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. yeah. So one year later, they administered the test again and found that life expectancy was going up even more than we thought. In one year, they were able to tell life expectancies yes. up based on a survey. Uh-huh. <laughs> you've you've preempted all of my questions. <laughs> so having aimed to add two years to the average resident's life, they managed to add 3.1, which is, again, a very precise figure, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And this is, of course, according to their own survey. Now, on the surface, this might seem like an incredible achievement. And at first, I must admit, I was kind of swept up in the positivity of it all. But when I paused for a moment, I realised this result is not all that surprising. The team identified a bunch of factors that they believe are associated with longevity, put it into a test, then they spent a year working with those people on those issues, retested them, and voila, those people's life expectancy by that particular measure had gone up. Now, I'm not at all suggesting that people's lives and health did not see any improvement. I'm very sure they did. Because any town that receives that much concentrated effort on improving the lives of its citizens will surely enjoy a lot of benefits. But we need to remember that this is not an independent party measuring the results. And we especially need to remember that this test is just a prediction of longevity that is based on people's own responses to a survey. That is not how life expectancy is actually calculated. The researchers didn't look at how many people actually died over a very long, long, long period of time of decades. Neither did they extrapolate from the mortality rates that they were observing over a certain period. Those are the two accepted methods for calculating life expectancy, and you really cannot compare any other kind of method to this. Instead, all the researchers did was ask people one year apart about lifestyle habits that the researchers believed were correlated with health. And such a test can never be comprehensive. There are better ones and worse ones, of course, but you are never going to have a perfect test. There can be relatively unimportant aspects that the researchers attach too much weight to, and there can be far more important aspects that they underestimated or even neglected to ask about entirely. That's why this isn't how you measure life expectancy. And to call what they have measured life expectancy is 
very misleading. It would have been more honest to call this measure something like a Blue Zones Vitality Score or something like that. Something that would make it clear that this is simply a indicator based on their own criteria. And again, they should never have attached, you know, a, a very precise figure like 3.1 years, which implies that they have a level of confidence that they really shouldn't be pretending to. The difference between two years and 3.1 years, or even the difference between zero years and 3.1 years, could still be very much within uncertainty bounds. But even with a more honest description, I think this measurement is still very problematic. Whenever you do research on humans, you have to consider the effects of the observer as well. And in Albert Lee, residents by this stage had attended many town halls, community events, and other seminars in which they were told time and time again what were the good things to do and the bad things to do. And while this is, of course, an important form of education, and I'm not at all suggesting that the researchers were trying to do anything other than inform people, it is unavoidably, intentionally or unintentionally, also a form of coaching. Residents were essentially coached to give the right sort of answers over a 12-month period. Now, hopefully, the majority of participants gave honest responses, and I believe that they would have. But the vast majority of people will bend the truth a little. Especially when they think they're helping out. Yes, Exactly. If you, they're invested in it at this point, right? If they want mm. their town to continue to have a good reputation and also to continue to receive this investment mm. and, you know, they're being put on TV and celebrated and all this kind of stuff, for that positive attention and the investment to continue, it needs to look like it's working. And there's also just a general trend for participants in research studies to emulate the outcomes they believe are wanted because they feel that will be helping the researchers. Absolutely. Even as a researcher of language, when I would talk to people about you know how much language they feel they've learned from a certain experience or whatever, I had to be very careful about how I worded my questions and also to try and come up with other more objective measures that would, for example, test people's language knowledge as opposed to simply asking them how well they felt they were doing because of this phenomena. Even when there's nothing in it for them, most people are nice people and want to help out the researcher, even if there isn't any added incentives, which there certainly were in this particular case. In addition to that sort of carrot of being a nice person and helping out and helping out your town and continuing to receive these benefits, there's also a stick that's present here, right? Because most of us will shave off a few digits when we report our weight or our age, or add on a couple when we're reporting our height or our income. Even if it's an anonymous survey, people lie to themselves, right? What size clothing you wear or what your income is, how much something costs. We know that people are you know, play fast and loose with numbers all of the time in order to feel better about their financial status or about their health or about their age and so on. This is a really well-documented phenomena. And when you've spent an entire year over and above your lifetime in general, but a year being specifically trained to think of calories as problematic, to focus on your weight and your exercise 
it's very likely that at the end of that year, you will be even more likely to engage in those kinds of little truth-bending activities than what you were at the start when you were perhaps less sensitised to these issues. Regardless of all of those problems, though, this single year of data obtained not from measurable health tests but from a survey is apparently enough for Butner to declare that we now knew we could manufacture a blue zone in small-town America, but could it work for a nation? Ah, and that's our segue over to Singapore, I guess. It is. This is where he travels to what he describes as the completely manufactured society of Singapore. Yeah, I see where he's coming from that, but that's stretching it a bit, isn't it? Mm. Singapore has existed for a long time. And it's also very questionable to me that the documentary is presenting this in this order, because certainly Singapore was not created on the basis of the Blue Zones phenomena. Or trying to create longevity in general, just improving the quality of living. I mean, it was probably trying to increase longevity in the sense that we spoke about it in Mm -hmm. the previous episode, i.e. to just improve people's longevity from not so good because of the poverty that the nation existed in at the time, post-World War II, well, obviously pre and during, up until today when it is now a very wealthy and healthy nation. Yeah, when Singapore started its process of um, modernization, mm-hmm. it had a massive homeless population. Mm-hmm. It had overcrowding and slums mm-hmm. and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. It had, you know, sanitary issues, all these things. Yeah. Now, their goal here, even though the outcomes might be the same, their goal was not to increase longevity. Their goal was to increase the quality of life, yeah. you know, circumstances of people. And I think that's important distinction is what your goal is here. Mm-mm. It's not to, you know, to make the rich live longer. It's to generally improve the quality of life for everybody yeah. there. I think we need to distinguish between longevity as a concept in general, because that applies to everybody, and these edge case longevity questions, which is what the Blue Zones is really looking at. Blue Zones is trying to say, you know, live to 100 or beyond, right? Mm. And that is an edge case. 120 seems to be you know, approximately 120 seems to be the upper limit of the human lifespan at the moment. Going beyond that requires a lot of technology, health care, whatever that we don't currently have. But improving longevity from 40 to 50 or from 50 to 60, that is still a question of longevity. Trying to get people to stop dying at the age of five and at least live until 45 That is longevity as well. And I think that quality of life, of course, as you're saying, is what leads to that longevity. So Singapore is a nation that has grown from essentially a little fishing village, he says, into a nation with the longest life expectancy in the world and some of the happiest, richest citizens. Where citizens can live, Butner tells us, in full health without disease or disability. Wow. Now, we've been to a hospital in Singapore because yeah, disease were, and disability Yeah, there were people there. there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it wasn't just for foreigners. <laughs> Again, a lot of this is just nitpicking language, but mm. it kind of paints a picture in your head of a utopia that 
does not exist in the real world. And it sort of certainly skips a few steps going from a fishing village to, to what it is now. modern metropolis that it is. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it, uh, you know, it, it disregards several colonisations mm-hmm. and... Uh, the split with Malaysia. The split with Malaysia. Yes. It's the, a place with a fascinating and rich history. Yeah. Which, of course, we don't have time to look at in this episode Mm. because we focus so much on the US. Mm. I mean, you can say pretty much anywhere on the coast is grown from a little fishing village to something else, can't you? Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) As long as you skip the steps in between. Mm -hmm. So, and it is true that Singapore's modernisation has been extraordinarily rapid. So I'm not going to pick too many bones with Mm. that characterisation. But not from a fishing village. That was a long time ago. Okay, true. (laughs) But he talks to, the first person that he speaks to is a 93-year-old who is uh, a doctor, again, showing that people do have disease and disability and may need the services of doctors. So Dr. Chow's advice is hard work, honesty, and humility. He also plays tennis, and Butner says that players of tennis have the highest life expectancy of any sport. So I guess that could be another blue zone. Well, it is a rich person's game. <laughs> Very true. Oh, yeah, you're right. Because, like, people play golf if they can't play, like, tennis, right? Yeah. If you're fit and rich, you play tennis. If you are not fit and rich, you play golf. Yeah. I, I'm just guessing. I don't know what rich people do. <laughs> anyway, in conversation with an ambassador from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Chan Heng Chi, Butner says he's spent 20 years searching for blue zones And in most of them, it's a culture that's been around for hundreds of years or a millennia. This claim seems especially doubtful, not just because Singapore itself has a long and storied history of, as we've just discovered, but also because, like Singapore, Okinawa, for instance, has had its culture enormously transformed by the arrival of the Yamato Japanese and then by the American military. Ikaria also underwent a large transformation in recent times when it became known as the Red Rock and a dumping ground for 13,000 communists who were exiled by the Greek state. Sardinia has indeed been inhabited since the end of the Paleolithic period, but it has gone through enormous changes, being ruled by the Romans, the Vandals, the Byzantines, the Spanish, then being merged with the Italian mainland, all of which has had influence on the language, on the food culture, as we've seen in that episode. Sardinian nationalism was particularly strong in the 1970s to the 90s, with various militant groups blending separatist and communist ideas, the most famous of these being Barbeja Rosa. A couple of episodes ago, I kind of jokingly referred to the Blue Zones as being mostly red, so it was interesting to see the name Barbeja come up in connection with communism here. Of course, Costa Rica has also had a lot of change throughout history. In the 16th century, the population of around 6,000 was similar to the settlements in nearby Nicaragua, with a central plaza, a pyramid-shaped mound used for human sacrifice. Maybe that's the secret. This indigenous chiefdom, the largest encountered by the Spanish when they entered Costa Rica, was colonised, and the area for around 50 years became a bustling area of local great importance in transactions between Nicaragua and Panama. The culture was changed significantly with the introduction of Christianity and slavery, as well as the obligation to pay tribute. 
It appears that the Nikoyans were forced to resettle from their original hamlets and villages to a single town that is the Nikoya of today in order to make it easy for the Spanish to keep their control. A new social identity was introduced. The Nikoyans were called Indians, along with a caste system that was based on race. Eventually, the Indian Revolt of 1760-61 to took place and in 1848, Nicoya, as it is known today, was created by decree. So while these places might all have long histories, as indeed everywhere on the planet does, they are hardly stories of continuous, uninterrupted culture handed down virtually unaltered. Loma Linda as was only incorporated as a city in 1970, and maybe that's not relevant since the fourth blue zone was really a religious rather than a physical space. But even the Seventh-day Adventist church has not been around for hundreds of years, let alone a millennia. It was only founded in 1863. And this is why we have like photographic evidence of the origins of Loma Linda. This is not cultures going back for hundreds or thousands of years. Once again, this feels like that sort of golden age thinking that there's a lost tribe that's out in the Amazon that's living a million years. And, and they have the secret. They have the secret, that's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. That it's all our modern conveniences that are uh, causing us to be ill rather than, oh, you know, to, earlier today we were reading all about, you know, given we're in the neighbourhood, the Panama Canal and how many people died creating that. And it wasn't because of industrial accidents. Mm -hmm. It was thousands and thousands of people dying because of disease. Yes, disease, infection, lots of things which with modern medicine would be easily curable. Exactly. And also just general poverty i mean not having proper access to sanitation and food causes a lot of these problems in the 1960s butner says that life expectancy in singapore was about 20 years less than it is today he asks chi how they achieved that and look there is a lot about singapore that i would love to see other countries emulate in fact I believe that everywhere you go, you can find at least one good idea you can bring back to improve your own country. Absolutely. For example, Singapore's greatest achievement would have to be the HDB with their, their housing scheme, where they saw that there wasn't enough places to live. You know, it's a famously small island. Mm -hmm. And so what they did was, was they created a mandate that anyone who's not using space efficiently for like businesses that had let their buildings mm -hmm. get decrepit or stuff like that, things was confiscated. Mm. They put a lot of work into housing and building yeah. medium density housing for everyone to live. By getting rid of land banking. By getting rid of land mm. banking. So they're and not confiscating stuff that people are using, but mm. just things that people were... Inefficiently using. Yeah. But... Really, how remarkable is that 20 years increase and that time frame? Indeed. As we discussed in the last episode, the 1950 world average was just 47 years of life expectancy. By 2020, this had risen to 73. So a 26-year improvement was the average around the world from 1950 rather than 1960, but it's still a pretty comparable amount. According to Statistica, in 1950 the US life expectancy was 67 years, compared to close to 79 today. So that's an increase, but it's a 12-year increase. 
In Singapore in 1950, life expectancy wasn't too different to that found in the US. It was 65, so just a little bit lower, two years lower than what the US had at that time. But today, it is way higher than in the US at 85. And if things stay on track, by 2078, the average Singaporean could live to over 90 years of age. Now, since we're Australian, I decided to be a bit American myself, by which I mean use our nation as a benchmark. And I looked up the life expectancy in Australia in 1950. I'm just using 1950 because it's an easily found year of data for every nation, which allows for comparison. So in 1950, in Australia, the life expectancy was 68 years. Today, it's 83. That's a 15-year improvement. Better than the US's 12, but not as good as Singapore's 20. As per usual, we're kind of the middle of the pack. It's quite comparable, though, when you consider the population size and the population demographic differences. Mm -hmm. Singapore is a very urban nation. Urban people tend to have better mm -hmm. life expectancy than yep. rural population. Australia's got a large rural population, so therefore you're expected to be a few years behind. True. But honestly, all of us are small potatoes. You want to know where the big gains are? Oh, that has to be places like China. Interestingly, China's not on my list of the biggest gains. Ooh. Mali, South Sudan, Afghanistan, East Timor, Bhutan, Nepal, the Maldives, and Oman. So China is obviously held up quite often as having made some really incredible improvements, and we see it now as having all of these very modern, high-tech cities in a way that we don't really think of South Sudan or Nepal, right? But those eight countries that I just listed have each more than doubled their citizens' life expectancy between 1950 and 2015. They've added 30, in some cases even 40 years to the average life expectancy. I guess it's because there was so far to come. Exactly. Could we take a few lessons from these nations and double our life expectancy? Could we live to 160 or 170? Or if not quite double, could we add 30 or 40 years to our lifespans and guarantee that we live to 110 or 120? I highly doubt it. The secret, as you have guessed, is starting from a low base. A very low base. In the case of Mali and South Sudan, the life expectancy in 1950? Do you want to make a guess? Given what we saw in other places, I'm going to guess it's going to be around in the 30s. 27 years. Oh. That was the average life expectancy. It's terrible. In Afghanistan, it was 28. In fact, all of these nations had a life expectancy in 1950 well below the global average. If Americans, for example, wanted to boost their life expectancy by the same 42 years that the residents of the Maldives increased their lifespans by, that would mean they would achieve an average lifespan of 120 years. And as it turns out, that's basically our maximum lifespan. Now, I don't mean it's the maximum theoretical lifespan. But the maximum lifespan is generally defined as a measurement of the maximum amount of time that one or more species of a population has been observed to survive to. To date, the longest verified lifespan of a human was 122 years old. And we don't know 
whether we can go much beyond that. And for 120 to be the average age of death, there would have to be a whole bunch of people who live far, far beyond that unless we can somehow prevent every single death due to disease or accident before the age of 120. It makes sense for it to be much harder to improve already high life expectancies. The answers are obvious, and in the global scheme of things, cheap to implement when it comes to helping people survive their 20s and 30s. Clean water, food, antenatal care, vaccinations, sanitation. Those five things give enormous bang for the buck. But what do you do when you're trying to help extend the life of someone who doesn't just have a well, but has clean water that is piped to their house? Who doesn't just have enough food to live, but the luxury to choose among a range of foods? Who doesn't just have free access to vaccinations, but lives in a society with so many people who've taken up vaccinations that they have the freedom to decide not to participate in this communal effort to eradicate disease with very little personal risk? Who doesn't just have access to a toilet, but one that's actually inside their house? Pretty much everything that we can recommend beyond the basics is just tinkering. The effects are so subtle, it can be much, much harder to identify them. We all know that eating food is better than starving, that drinking water is better than dying of thirst. Those are the sorts of basic problems that when we solve them, we get a dramatic increase in life expectancy. But when it comes to deciding between sweet potatoes and corn, black beans and minestrone, that is a much harder call because the effects are so much more subtle and possibly even undetectable. South Sudan is incredibly poor. The GDP per capita is just $326. That's less than a dollar a day to cover everything. So it's hard hardly surprising that South Sudan has some of the worst health indicators in the world. And let me just be clear, that doesn't mean that every person has one dollar. It means that, on average, every person has a dollar. There are some people who have far less than that. More than half of the population is impoverished, and in 2017, the South Sudan famine affected five million people, around half the population. For those who survived, it's hard to imagine this terrible experience will have had a positive effect on their longevity. Mali is also one of the world's poorest nations with a GDP of $912 per capita. It's a country where there are just 0.8 doctors per 10,000 citizens. That means that the United States has more than twice as many centenarians per capita as there are doctors in Mali. For a nation of 10 million people in 2009, Mali had only 729 doctors, and reports suggest that availability has gotten even worse since the 2012 conflict. Two-thirds of the nation lack proper sanitation according to Western standards, and more than 4,000 children under the age of five die each year from diarrhea. A village requires 50,000 litres of water a day, which is an amount that two electric pumps can provide. But with traditional wells, remember... Yes, the good old way of doing things. We should do everything by hand. Yes, pump it by hand and you'll live longer. Dug by hand, rather than two wells, you need 64. 
And then women's lives must center around collecting water. This is something else that I don't think is mentioned enough in the Blue Zones series, that when you say do things by hand, it is often the labor-saving devices that help women in their work that is being spoken about. And the people who have to do the extra work when those things are not there are the women. Hand-dug wells also tend to be less reliable and provide poorer quality water, more subject to contamination. Rural families are especially hard done by. While villagers earn less than $200 a year, medicines sold in rural Mali cost even more than they do in Western countries. Though it's improving, health in Afghanistan has been negatively affected by environmental issues and decades of war. The GDP per capita is just $611 per year. As in other nations, much of the important improvements that have been made there have been in dramatically reducing maternal and infant mortality. And as I mentioned in a previous episode of this podcast, childbirth is one of the biggest impacts on women's longevity. Infancy is also one of the most precarious periods in any of our lives. Additionally, by 2021, nearly 90% of residents had access to clean water, compared to just 16% 10 years before. Another big thing about child mortality is it has the biggest impact on statistics as well. Mm -hmm. Because if you have someone dying in the first few years of life, that brings down the life expectancy of everybody dramatically. Exactly. Very much so. Nepal's health services are generally regarded as failing, and in addition to periodic epidemics, which particularly affect those living in rural poverty, there are also frequent natural disasters. However, once again, improvements ensuring that children get enough to eat and women don't die as frequently in childbirth has dramatically increased life expectancy, as you mentioned, Simon, to the point that it is now almost on par with the United States. Nepalese GDP per capita, though, is just $1,352 per year, yet life expectancy has increased there to 71 years of age. And I think this goes to demonstrate my point. The United States is not a particularly good benchmark when it comes to longevity. It is a rich country with a poor country's health. Despite having a GDP of $3,500 per capita, Bhutan has provided universal health care since the 1970s. For the record, that's about half of what individual US citizens spend on health insurance alone each year. Despite having a GDP of only $3,500 per capita, Bhutan has provided universal health care since the 1970s. For the record, that's about half of what individual US citizens spend on health insurance alone each year. Bhutan considers health among its top priorities as a component of the nation's gross national happiness. Its healthcare accelerated rapidly in the 1960s, but even though it achieves most of what is expected with regard to children's health, it is not achieving as much as it should for adults based on the country's level of income and falls into the bad category with regard to reproductive rights. Notably though, adjusted for income, Bhutan still outperforms the US in this category. This is much better than East Timor or Timor-Leste, 
which is fulfilling only 35% of what is expected with regard to reproductive rights, putting it into the very bad category. The country's GDP is just $1,497 per capita, one of the lowest, but it has one of the highest smoking rates in the world, with 61% of men smoking every day. And this is something that we've mentioned before, is a big contributor to men's generally lower lifespans. Malnutrition rates among children have reduced, but stood at 51% in 2013. Oman has the opposite problem though, with a 2014 study showing that today, 30% of the population is overweight and 20% obese. This is probably associated with the fact that the country has the world's 55th highest GDP per capita at $21,000 per year. Although a ban on smoking in public places was introduced in 2010, which required restaurants and malls to designate 50% or more of their space as non-smoking regions, it is estimated that 70% of residents suffer some kind of curable disease that is related to smoking. Wow. Aside from reproductive health, the Human Rights Initiative found that the Maldives universal healthcare system is fulfilling almost all of what it should with respect to children's and adults' health. Even though the GDP per capita is over $17,000 a year, making it 58th in the world, there is an increasing disparity between health in the capital and on the islands, and malnutrition is a persistent problem due to the cost of imported foods. Nevertheless, life expectancy is now just two years off that in the US. The last two countries that I mentioned were the only ones that managed to increase their longevity by a massive 40 or more years. And this seems to be due to a massive increase in wealth. A graph showing Oman's GDP per capita, adjusted for inflation and measured in international dollars, shows that in the 1950s, Oman had very, very little money. Until about 1965, that line remained basically flat, close to zero dollars. But then it rapidly increased and steadily, hitting $10,000 per person around 1985. People went from nothing, essentially, to $10,000 a year. More rapid rises occurred between 1990 and 2000, reaching $30,000 per capita in the early 2000s. Much of this wealth is derived from oil and gas, with the country doubling their output between 1979 and 1985. And today, oil and gas represents almost three quarters of the government's revenues, and more than 30% of the nominal GDP. The Maldives, on the other hand, relies much more on tourism. It accounts for almost 30% of their GDP and more than 90% of the government's tax revenues from import duties and tourist tax. In 1972, there were only two resorts in the Maldives, but in 2007, there were 92. Though the 189 islands are home to just under 400,000 inhabitants, since the 1970s tourism has exploded and close to 2 million tourists visit each year. To me, indisputably, this is what has the biggest impact on your life expectancy. Money. Sufficient money to provide nutrition and healthcare. And it doesn't matter who's money that is in the hands. If it's a government-run healthcare system, then the money is going through taxation. Mm -hmm. If it's private, then it goes into individuals' hands. Exactly. But Butner is, if you recall, talking to 
the ambassador in Singapore. So let's hear what she has to say. I honestly expected her to talk about the nation's enormous investments in housing, like you mentioned before, Simon, and infrastructure, which vastly improved sanitation, disease control, etc. Instead, perhaps because she's talking to an American, she says, In Singapore, we have very severe penalties on drugs and for people who carry guns. Drug death and gun death is still pretty low. They are very mm -hmm. unnatural ways to go, and that's mm -hmm. why they're horrific, because they're extremely preventable deaths. Precisely. But they are still a very small percentage of what actually does people out. Indeed. And it's true that Singapore does have very strict laws with regard to these things. Anyone who's travelled to Singapore and filled out one of their scary immigration forms will know that penalties include the death penalty. Hardly a contributor to longevity, I would imagine. In fact, when I searched for drug-related deaths in Singapore, the results were full of articles on people being hung by the state for drug offences, not dying due to drug use. But is this effective, though? According to World Health Organization data, 19 people died from drug use in Singapore in 2020. None were killed in that particular year for drug trafficking, but the average is 12. Whoa, that's much higher than I expected. So there's roughly about as many people being killed for trafficking drugs as there are who die by taking drugs. Adding these two figures together, we arrive at 31 deaths in a nation with approximately 6 million people. In similarly sized but far more liberal with regard to drugs, Denmark, 197 people died from drug overdoses that year. Drug-related deaths accounted for 0.08% of Singapore's deaths in 2020. In the US, it is 2.97% of all deaths. And the age-adjusted death rate is 21.28 deaths per 100,000 population making the US truly number one. So I guess this is a big difference between those two places, and I assume that the a lot of the drug deaths in America would be to do with their epidemic on... Prescription, prescription drugs. drugs. not illegal drugs. Which once again brings us back to the question not of law and order, but rather of the incentivization of profits from healthcare. But while Singapore's capital punishment might help reduce its drug-related deaths, it might also be contributing to problems elsewhere. The strictness of Singapore's laws seem to have made it an attractive transit point for drug traffickers, as foreign airport officials assume that very few people would take the risk, and so they do a better job of checking arrivals from high drug production countries and don't worry so much about anybody who has come through Singapore. So that can result in more drugs making it into other countries which otherwise might have been stopped at that point of transit. Firearms-related offences also attract the death penalty in Singapore, though much more rarely. The numbers aren't really made public, but it's likely that fewer than 10 people have been executed in relation to firearms since 1991. According to the WHO's data, 15 Singaporeans died as a result of violence in 2020. Denmark also outlaws the use of firearms, 
but doesn't have the death penalty. And there, 63 people died as a result of violence in 2020. So, a few more. In Singapore, just 0.06% of deaths are violent in nature, compared to 0.76% in the US, more than 10 times higher. Quite significantly more. But as we were saying, still a very small percentage of deaths. Yes, but it's surprising, isn't it, that mm. in the United States you have almost a one in a hundred chance of coming to a violent end. Mm. That's pretty terrifying. So these are important factors. But even in America, as you say, Simon, most people are not dying from drug overdoses or gunshot wounds. Even if we could eliminate those things by snapping our fingers... America's life expectancy would not look like Singapore's tomorrow because there's something else that Singapore did. And according to Chi, that thing is nudges. And not the sort of overblown, often ineffectual nudges that you might read about in the nudge book, for instance. Like moving healthier foods to a more attractive place in the school cafeteria. But actual policy and implementation. Subsidising brown rice, for example, to make it more popular and affordable than white rice. I said money was important, and the Singaporean government seems to be putting its money where its mouth is. But even so, I can't help but think that Butner is exaggerating a lot of these claims. He says, In past decades, Singapore's food environment wasn't all that healthy. They had junk food. They had lots of oil and sugar in their food. The way he says this makes it sound as if junk food, oily food and sweets are a thing of the past in yeah, Singapore. Yeah, um, these are things I really enjoy when I go to Singapore. Right. <laughs> they absolutely exist there still. Mm. In abundance. Singaporean food is famous for being wok-fried in vegetable oils. Yes. Buna says that soda is the number one source of refined sugar in most diets. And now it's time for another misleading graphic. So you might remember the graphic comparing the eggs and the beans and vegetables in the last episode. This time, we have two glasses of cola. One shows the 12% limit on sugar that has been imposed by Singapore. So there's a, an arrow that goes part the way up the glass, representing 12%, the maximum amount of sugar you can have in a drink. And the other cup represents the US. And it has a line that goes all the way to the top of the glass and says, No limit. <laughs> <laughs> implying that soda sold in the US could be up to 100% sugar, which is clearly false. Mm. If it's 100% sugar, it's sugar, not soda. Yeah, we're not interested in what the regulation differences are here between no regulation and a regulation. We're interested in what the differences in soda levels are when it comes to sugar. Yes, exactly. So I thought I should take a look into that. Why are they telling us about the regulations as opposed to what the actual sugar content of the drinks is. The Netflix documentary implies that a glass of Coke in the US contains way more sugar than it does in Singapore, where they've actually imposed a restriction. So does it? A single serving size bottle of Coke in the US is 20 fluid ounces and contains 65 grams of sugar. So 20 fluid ounces of liquid weighs a little over 591 grams. And what is 65 grams of sugar? 
divided by 591 grams of total weight, 10.99%. It is not more than Singapore's limit, it's actually less. So does this mean that we should all drink coke and pat ourselves on the back for coming in well under Singapore's recommended 12% limit? No. Because that's still a lot of sugar. <laughs> the American Heart Association recommends keeping your daily intake of added sugar under 25 grams for women or 36 for men, which is way less than a single serving bottle of coke has in the United States. And that is the problem with percentages. Because how big is the serving size? In Singapore, Coca-Cola is sold mainly in slim cans of just over 300 mils. In the US, 12 fluid ounces is the standard size, which is closer to 360 mils. Now, to be sure, there are way more sugary drinks in the US. I looked at several lists and found Crush Pineapple, Mellow Yellow and Mountain Dew all listed as top candidates and they each work out to around 13-14% to 14 sugar. But let's face it, reducing the sugar content to 12% from 13 or 14 is not sufficient if you are still selling such big cans and bottles as the regular serving size. If Mountain Dew reduced its sugar content by 2 or 3 grams, it would come in under the Singapore's 12% guideline and hence represent a healthier choice. But a single can would still exceed both women's and men's total daily recommended added sugar intake. Unless you think I'm just picking on the United States here, I have to point out that Australian standard size cans are even larger. While the slim cans are increasingly available, for years the standard size has been 375 mils. The trick is that the Coca-Cola website and the cans list the serving size as 100 mils. Because you know, it's totally realistic that a person will purchase a can of Coke, drink 100 mils, store the remainder in the fridge, come back tomorrow for another 100 mils, and then on the third day for another 100 mils, and on the fourth, I guess they'll consume 75 mils and crack open another can to make up the rest of their serving. <laughs> Is that how you typically drink your Coke? Well, I do prefer it flat. <laughs> now, Butner remarks upon the traffic in Singapore next. How, despite being such a densely populated country, it's not bad at all. And that is because, once again, of money. This time, the extremely high cost of driving. Cars cost around two and a half times what they do in the United States. And in order to have the right to drive, he reports, you need to pay a hundred thousand Singaporean dollars. In order to understand the wisdom of this, Butner says you need to look at the United States, specifically city design. And I totally agree. This isn't just a stick approach where Singapore is punishing people by charging them money to use a car. Rather, they offer a carrot as well, which is their superb public transport system. Approximately 50% of the population of Singapore uses the transportation system every day. So half the country is getting onto the public transport system. Do you know what that figure is in the United States? Oh, it's got to be under 2%, I'd say. It's it's 5, surprisingly. 5%, But it's All still right. very low. I knew it would be in the single digits. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Singapore is a really important hub. It's also the best way for us as Australians to travel to destinations like 
the Americas or Europe, so it's somewhere that we've been a number of times. It's also a very convenient location for meetings and conferences as it connects the hemispheres, so it's somewhere that I visited as part of my job as an academic. And one of my enduring impressions of Singapore was of the public transport system. Specifically, the fact that the Singapore Mass Rapid Transit, or SMRT, was listed among the top things to do in the city-state. Even today, the SMRT has a rating of 4.5 stars on TripAdvisor, and it has had 24,432 reviews at time of recording. If my memory serves me right, the SMRT was actually designed by uh, Japanese mm -hmm. rail uh, experts. Mm. So it's basically what if Tokyo had the chance to start from scratch designing yeah. their metro, and that's what they came up with. And that's why it's absolutely fantastic, and it's very well maintained. And it, the number of reviews that, that the SMRT has garnered is way more than the Botanic Gardens, the <laughs> National Orchid Garden, the Cloud Forest, the Singapore Zoo, the Marina Bay, the Singapore Flyer, the Discovery Centre, the Observation Deck, the Super Tree Grove, Chinatown, Orchard Road, the Merlion, the Buddha Tooth Relic Temple, or the Waterfront Promenade. And another thing I can say about it is it's very affordable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Imagine in your city, can you get from the airport to the other side of the city for $2? Mm, it is. It's extremely affordable and clean and enjoyable, safe, efficient, reliable. I think generally people only review places that are mundane, like public transport, if they've had either a really good or a really terrible experience. For the SMRT to have attracted so many and such glowing reviews from so many people all over the world on a platform like TripAdvisor, you know they're doing something right. The car taxes, Butner explains, are used to pay for bike lanes and covered walkways, and those covered walkways make public transport more accessible and comfortable. And they're often designed so that they go through the country's 350 parks, in which you can frequently find people working out in government-sponsored exercise programs. And another thing about that part of the world is there's often rainy seasons, mm -hmm. and those covered walkways come in real handy if you don't want to get to work drenched. Absolutely. And this is something that you and I have taken advantage of the times we've been in Singapore. Those covered walkways are either great protection from the sun or great protection from the rain, but they're not as often thought about in other countries. We certainly don't try and figure out good routes to public transport areas in Australia, and I don't think the United States does either. But they're not unique to Singapore either, because mm -hmm. neighbouring Malaysia is actually pretty good on these as well. Yes, in fact, it's quite difficult to go outside to be somewhere that isn't air-conditioned when you're in Kuala Lumpur, for example. And when you do, it's usually a covered walkway. Indeed. Butner then goes and talks to a group of extremely fit elders in their 70s, doing the splits, pull-ups, push-ups, and lots of other impressive exercises that I don't even know the names of. Oh, I see this every day in Singapore, just a bunch of old people doing the splits. This explains the longevity. <laughs> <laughs> It is true that you do see a lot of very like elderly people doing very strong physically active exercise out and about. Yeah, certainly. Not just in Singapore, but throughout Asia. Throughout I mean, Asia, yeah. Um, it was very difficult to walk around the lake in Vietnam, for mm. instance, without encountering big groups of middle-aged to elderly people, you know, in dance routines and things like that. Mm. 
They explain that the government has not only installed these kinds of outdoor gymnasiums in every neighbourhood, but runs programs to actually encourage people to exercise. Now, you might think this is in conflict with the Blue Zone principle of move naturally. And Butner seems to think so too, because rather than asking them about how they use the equipment, or what exercises they do, or what role having this place to work out in the community plays in their social lives, because these are also like really important places for like old men to get together and chat and things like that. He downplays the importance of the infrastructure, instead asking how they get around and whether they own cars. But the answer's going to be no, they're, they're Singaporeans. <laughs> yes. When they explain that they walk and take the subway and that they get in 10,000 steps a day through their walking, Butner says, you're getting three times as much exercise just living your life than you are doing exercise. How does he calculate that? Not only that, though, but it's a different kind of exercise, exactly. right? There is no way that these men would have the flexibility, the muscles, and the stamina that they do in their late 70s if all they were doing was walking 10,000 steps a day. This other training that they are purposely doing is important, and additionally, it brings them social benefits. Absolutely. Finally, we turn to your favourite topic. Oh, housing. Yes. 80% of Singaporeans, as we know, own their own homes. But Buna doesn't really tell us why. Mm -hmm. He just says that when people own their own homes, they take better care of them and they invest more in their communities. There's no mention of the fact that A, the housing is government subsidised, B, people are legally obligated to take care of buildings, and C, community programs are heavily supported by the government. He presents Kampung Admiralty as a government-subsidised community for the over-55s as a kind of anomaly rather than the norm that we know it is. And I'm surprised that when Buten is talking about housing as an important factor here, he's not bringing up the fact that Singaporean apartment buildings would be specifically designed to have the bottom floors be communal spaces. Mm, that's very true So as they're well. always unwalled at the bottom, just that's where the pillars are and you have... Uh, communal spaces, places you can hold weddings, places you can hold picnics and everything like that. Where, mm. Places where people can meet and socialise. I remember the first time we were in Singapore, we watched a really nice comedy that was set in an apartment building because one of the things about the government housing system is that they have tried to integrate people as much as possible and avoid ghettos. They have intentionally engineered their society to mix. And I, I remember there being a comedy that was about one of those apartment blocks and two groups of people who had, I think, a funeral and a wedding booked on the same day for the same space and they had to, like, navigate between the cultures, between the events. It was, it was great. But let's get back to Kampung Admiralty. The architectural director, Pearl Chi, explains that Kampung means village in Malay which is, of course, one of the languages spoken in Singapore. She says that the top floors are landscaped apartments with lots of greenery designed to keep people active, while the lower floors are medical facilities and the bottom of the building is a public plaza. I really liked this idea. The idea was that lots of people would stream through the public plaza to get to the public transport, which would mean that there would be, once again, mixing. 
So this time it's not based on your cultural or ethnicity background, but rather based on different age groups. So the whole idea was to get young people on their way to work and their way to school and middle-aged people through the doors so that the over 55s would be mixing with people who are much younger than themselves and vice versa. And that's another thing that they've done in the design of these buildings by having different uh, sized apartments throughout the buildings. Mm. So there's always a mixture of single room dwellings, Mm. two room dwellings, and then a fewer amount of three room ones in one building and they where you get people of that different stages in their life in the one building yes so you can have a family as well as a young person just starting out or a young couple or an elderly person Mm. or elderly couple lots of different things and people could feel like they can downsize as well Mm. without moving out of their neighborhood which is a big problem in a lot of countries and the other factor is that the cost of housing is actually adjusted based on your income. Mm -hmm. So it's not based on the demand in the marketplace, but what you as an individual can afford, the housing will be discounted to Mm. be within your affordability range. Interesting. The documentary interviews 81-year-old Se Juan He, who says that he tries to avoid becoming a couch potato and that no man is an island and it's important to mix with others in this way and keep your mind and body active. If you're not happy... You cannot live long, he says. And I think this is something that the elderly people interviewed have said in every single step along the way. Absolutely. But still, he doesn't think that's his you know, highest priority thing, even though in his interviews, this is always coming up. Mm-hmm. Se Juan He lives with his family. And we return to the ambassador who says that the proximity housing grant is designed to encourage families to live near each other. So people are actually given a sum of money if they live near their parents or their children in a public housing estate. Because again, public housing is the norm in Singapore. Butner asks if what Singapore has done could be achieved in America. And the ambassador responds that Singapore is one of a kind. It's a small nation a city-state which can write its own laws and agreements, but perhaps some aspects could be borrowed. First, you have to have a vision and a desire to have those objectives. Then you have to have people that have an investment in providing healthy lives, healthy families. How do you create this private-public partnership? She says, I think if you can tell Americans that I can help you reduce your health care costs, I think half your battle is won. So you make the economic argument to produce a human benefit, Butner summarises. He concludes that the most effective approach will be policy. And this is where he returns to the United States, saying, After proving that blue zones could work in a small town, Albert Lee, then I decided to scale it. And we discovered that insurance companies and hospital systems and private foundations were willing to make the investment in keeping cities healthier. You asked before where the money was coming from, Simon? This is where. Interesting. He continues, We were then able to take the Blue Zone project from Albert Lee to the beach cities of Los Angeles to the whole state of Iowa. But it wasn't until Fort Worth, Cowtown, that we showed that this could really work anywhere in America. Before we move back to America, though, I think there are a couple of important things to observe about Singapore. Number one, 
We haven't learned any lessons from Singapore. Unlike the other blue zones, the lessons from Singapore don't get added to any kind of summary graphic. And that's related to my second point. Although this part concluded with a discussion of public-private partnerships, so far the majority of the focus has been, in Singapore, on government actions, laws, policies, funding. There really aren't so many lessons here for individuals to take on board, that is, for us viewers of the Netflix documentary. Nor are there really lessons for public-private partnerships to take on board, that is, the corporate sponsors of America's Blue Zones, as we'll see in a moment. Butner's main point simply seems to be to show that longevity is possible in a modern city, even though the way Singapore has improved its life expectancy is radically different from the Blue Zone project's proposal that individuals and private corporations will fix it. There's another few takeaways from here as well. Mm -hmm. What is missing from his metric of longevity in Singapore? Mm. We didn't talk to any centenarians? Exactly. Once again, live to 100 is being ignored for the second time here. Good no, improve. it's actually the third time, well, I for believe. The third mm. time, yes. Uh, oh, yes, because before we had the 90-year-olds as well, That's right. right. So in at least... Three of the six locations, Yeah, it's not a key feature. And Singapore is living two years longer than Australians, mm -hmm. which is understandable given it's an urban population. So it's not that particularly significant a lifespan. Again, it just comes down to using the US as a benchmark. Yes, and it also comes down to the fact that I think he saw, you know, a 20-year increase and thought, well, that looks impressive. Mm -hmm. Which, as we've seen given the low base, is not necessarily the case. Exactly. The time that he's looking in the past is a little bit after my grandparents mm -hmm. lived there. When they lived there, the Singapore they knew is very different to the Singapore I've ever known. I remember when we spoke to your nana and told her that we were going to Singapore, um, she was like so concerned that it was going to be overrun with rats and filthy. and. Yes, exactly. I mean, they were there because they were obliged to by the British military mm -hmm. that's where they got stationed but mm -hmm. uh, I don't say so for someone of her age from when she lived in Singapore mm -hmm. she wouldn't know why someone would want to visit yeah and when we showed her the photos and videos from there it was unrecognizable to her mm. the the country really has I mean perhaps not changed from a small fishing village as Butner says but it really has had a, a dramatic and radical transformation yes but even back then it was heavily overpopulated and mm -hmm. this is a big thing that needs to be thought about mm -hmm. it's gone from a heavily overpopulated place to a well even larger population but people are housed now it's no longer overpopulated because there is the infrastructure mm -hmm. to hold mm -hmm. these people that's a really good point because overpopulation is not just about the sheer numbers of people that exist in a certain geographic location mm. but rather whether there is sufficient clean water sufficient sanitation sufficient food sufficient housing if you fix those things the population can increase without detrimental effects absolutely Singapore, whilst it has 6 million people, which is a lot of the size of it, it does not feel like a crowded place, mm. much like Tokyo. Very Tokyo true. has 30 million plus people, does not feel like a crowded place. However, places such as Macau, which is the most heavily densely populated mm -hmm. place in the world, 
feels crowded. But a lot of the feeling of crowdedness, I think, comes back to another issue that we've discussed in previous episodes, which is the density of housing. Mm. Singapore has many, many high-rise buildings and very few that are medium-density housing. That's almost unheard of there and you have to be mega mega wealthy to be able to afford like a standalone house and even then you're probably going to have a townhouse that allows the country to have really big luscious parks and green spaces and communal areas and a big aquifer in the middle yeah and you can you can go out and dine and do all of these things very affordably so even if your own individual home is relatively small perhaps because you get to enjoy so much outside space and you can afford to go to restaurants and things like that, it isn't such a big issue. And why would I want to eat my crappy homemade food when I can just hop on the train, go to the park and eat some satay? Your food is delicious, but satay by the bay is something special, isn't it? (laughs) As much as it pains me to do so, should we move from Singapore back to the US and see what lessons Butner decides to implement? Let's go. So seeing as Albert Lee appeared to be the first time that the Blue Zones plan was actually implemented as an experiment, rather than just being a series of observations, I felt sure that there would be a lot of studies on this place. But to my great surprise, I found hardly any papers mentioning Albert Lee, Minnesota and Blue Zones. Those that I could find, which were focused on health, were actually often written by students, including undergraduate and high school students, as well as non-academics who relied heavily upon news articles that were written by Dan Butner himself to back up claims such as having obese friends makes you 50% more likely to become fat. (laughs) And the only evidence we have for this is that he said it once. Most of them were glowing reports with very little in the way of original research, let alone the kind of multidisciplinary, long-term tracking of the town's health outcomes that I was looking for. But the papers that I found that weren't health-focused turned out to be much more interesting because they talked about neoliberalism. Interesting. In an article called Making the Blue Zones, Neoliberalism and Nudges in Public Health Promotion, Eric C. Carter makes use of critical discourse analysis to analyse the discourse surrounding the Blue Zones project and describes the project as reflecting the neoliberalisation of public health. The Blue Zones project exemplifies the neoliberal mechanisms of public-private partnership, competition among communities for funds, we'll get to that in a moment, and the decentralisation of governance to the community level. Community is in inverted commas because oftentimes, unless it is a grassroots effort, community does not exist. Branding marketing and corporate sponsorship of ostensibly community projects and the promotion of an apolitical discourse which, despite its talk about community, emphasises individual responsibility for health. Sounds pretty political to me. Yes, but it's apolitical in the sense of let's not radicalise people, let's not have anybody lobby to better themselves and others. Let's have them shut up and take responsibility for their own health 
and view their own illness as a personal failing as opposed to a failing of the system. Sounds like a radicalization to me. <laughs> it's enough to make one a radical, I agree. Turn against family mm-hmm. and just feel responsible. Turn for against your neighbor. Turn against yeah. your neighbor. Feel responsible for everything that happens to you. Don't go to your government asking for handouts. Mm-hmm. Watcher, on the other hand, prefers the term neuroliberalism to describe the Blue Zones text because it grants individuals the autonomy to be their own choice architects. (laughs) Of course, one can only really make an informed choice if the information that one is provided is not only accurate, but hasn't been passed through numerous filters of distortion. And although governments introducing nudges may be positively perceived in some regards, as the authors of neuroliberalism, behavioural government in the 21st century point out, there are significant ethical issues, including the danger of the neurological sciences being co-opted to the needs of neoliberal economies. So in other words, brainwashing people into accepting really radical forms of capitalism. Mm -hmm. It might sound strange to talk about the Blue Zones project in neoliberal terms. After all, the title literally emphasises the importance of one's environment. Many of the lessons and pillars that the Power Nine covered in the book, in the series and the project are community-focused. Butner himself says that connection is about 50% of the equation. But we have to remember that ultimately these Blue Zones trademark projects are addressing the individual. The final chapter of the Blue Zones book is called Your Personal Blue Zone. It's not advocating for you to become a politician and make changes in your community. It's not suggesting that you lobby the government for better policies. It's wellness at the individual atomized level, the level which makes health into a marketable commodity and a personal responsibility rather than something we achieve together as a community. In complete disregard, of the sorts of grassroots communal efforts as well as the top-down governmental efforts that we saw in each of the countries featured in the book and the documentary. And in case you think, well, the book might end on this personal Blue Zones note and be a tad too individualistic, we should pay attention to the Blue Zones project at the culmination of the Netflix series. For all its community dressing, The Blue Zones project in Cowtown and elsewhere turns out to be just as individualistic. Marston, Niles, Yoakum and Silver conducted a critical review of the Blue Zones checklists that were used by the project. There are four of these. For your home, kitchen, bedroom and tribe. Hang on, hang on. Your kitchen and your bedroom are in your home. Typically, yes. So this is really two things. (laughs) Mm. Three of those four things refer directly to your own personal home environment, Mm. right? Your home, kitchen, bedroom. But even tribe, as we'll see, takes an incredibly self-centered view of human relations. Recommendations for home include items such as placing a scale in a prominent place in your home and weighing yourself daily. Ah, fat shame yourself daily to Mm -hmm. improve your mental stability. Yes, 
and healthiness. For all of the times that we've been told by doctors and other experts in this very series that your diet is not the most important thing and that your mentality is often more important when it comes to longevity, they are making this recommendation? I hope I don't have to explain how detrimental such advice can be for anybody who has an eating disorder. And besides, there is substantial evidence to suggest that there are much better measurements such as your waist circumference as a proportion of your height. That's a much more important indicator of your health than the exceptionally flawed and often sexist and racist measurement of BMI. The next recommendation is own a dog. Woof. How is that going to work in Singapore? Do you remember that coming up at all in any of the blue zones? Like I having a pet? Don't. No. No. And I don't think it would be good advice for those of us who have allergies. Nor is it good advice for the millions of Americans who rent or who may be struggling to pay their own food bills and don't want another mouth to feed. And then there are some items that speak to a level of privilege that surely will not be relevant to all. One of them is disconnect your garage door opener what yep. so oh so manually lift your door open and that's mm-hmm. going to make you live longer is that what yep. it is so if you disconnect your garage door opener you'll receive five points now we've never had a garage door let alone a bloody opener for a garage door so we just miss out on that five points as far as this checklist is concerned i suppose he probably wants you to Get rid of the uh, buttons to lower and raise the windows in the car too and replace it with the old crank. The cr- oh, that would be good. I wonder if they put that in there. They should. <laughs> but see how ridiculous this is that if your primary mode of transport, like it is for us, is walking and therefore you don't have a garage, you cannot get points yes. for, for removing your garage door opener. And the, the thing is, like, this is going to give you, what, one calorie burned? Or if you've got a particularly hard-to-open um, garage door, as many people do, maybe mm-hmm. a hernia. <laughs> the next recommendation is to... <laughs> I can hardly say this one. <laughs> Create a destination room. A destination room. <laughs> what do you think a destination room means? Uh, I can't even guess. So I thought it might be like theme a room with like, you know, Okinawan theme or, you know, Sardinia <laughs> theme. Create your own personal blue zone. That's what I thought we could paint a room blue. <laughs> but no. It literally says to build a room on top of your house. What? Yes, that will encourage stair climbing. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, that's that would, A, cost a lot of money. B, your upstairs neighbours probably wouldn't be very happy with that. <laughs> There's just this assumption that everybody lives in a single family dwelling that they own and have stacks of money lying around mm. for renovations now if you do this you have to put in it a table large enough for family activities personally i think i'll just stick to the recommendation to put cushions on the floor it's notable to me that of the 13 items on the home checklist only three suggest reducing anything the other 10 involve buying and owning things 
which is so out of keeping with the very simple lives of the people that we saw who actually became centenarians. If you think about the people that were in Nikoya who lived in simple wooden huts, if you think about the people who lived in Okinawa and who, in Butner's view, didn't even own quote-unquote real furniture, they did not build a destination room with a big table for family activities. The bedroom checklist is pretty similar. There's an assumption that we can all afford a bedroom in which we can precisely control the climate, can afford to buy a top-of-the-range mattress and various other expensive items, but whether or not you actually get a good night's sleep is not assessed. It's just a question of whether you own these things. But the other two lists have some pretty bizarre and even nonsensical requirements. The kitchen one will give you five points if you've got a junk food drawer, but zero if you don't. Huh? What? Yeah. Even if the reason you don't have a junk food drawer is because you don't eat junk food or you only do on special occasions when you're out of the house. Who has enough junk food that they can fill a drawer with it? I see a problem here. (laughs) The tribe one relates to your personal behaviours. So even though it's supposed to be about your connection with others, it's about your personal behaviours. And it includes a question on alcohol. Apparently you will get zero points if you don't drink, three for having one drink a day, and five for having two or more. And my question here is it's communal drinking is specifically mentioned? No, it's just for how much alcohol you personally consume. Okay, so now tribe includes diet. Yes, and not only that, But look at the number of drinks that you get for the number of points. If you don't drink, you get nothing. If you drink one drink a day, which is the maximum that a woman should be having, you get three points. If you are drinking two or more, which is the definition of drinking to excess for both men and women, then you get five. Full points. Absolutely crazy. And it's not even saying what type of alcohol you're drinking, which might be a lot more proof. I guess it means standard drinks, but you're quite right. There is a a big Mm -hmm. difference. And also, I think we can all distinguish between more and less healthy forms of drinking. As you mentioned, is this social drinking? Is this your wind down at the end of the day with the nuts and everything else that Mm -hmm. they mentioned? Or is this... I got out of bed and I needed it to handle what's coming up. And the Blue Zone's excuse for still including the drinking of wine is that it is a communal uh, possibility, like Uh, an opportunity for community to get together and drink at a pub or whatever, Mm -hmm. not sitting in the chair while sitting on your walking up to your (laughs) additional your destination room room and having a a drink at your uh, family table with your toddler so i found this particular ranking exceptionally bizarre right Mm. to the point that i actually found another version of the checklist elsewhere and downloaded it because i thought maybe the researchers got this like the people who wrote that paper that was reporting on this got the scale wrong So I went and found the original checklist. No, that's how it is. You really do get five points for having two or more drinks a day. Notice also that there is no upper limit. It doesn't say like if you had eight or 10 or 20, that that you get minus points or you get zero. No, somebody who is an alcoholic will get five points and somebody who does not drink gets none. So I thought maybe I've read it wrong. Maybe on this particular checklist, the tribe one, 
a higher score is bad. But no, you get five points for being a healthy weight, five points for not using illegal drugs, five points for not smoking, but you get five points for drinking to excess. And of course, there is no nuance in these measures. There is no scale. It is just a checklist. It's binary. You smoke or you don't. How often is not important. You're either a healthy weight or you are not. How much you're overweight by or underweight by is not important. And disturbingly, the website asks participants to then answer those same questions about their friends. Oh my. Yes, you actually are supposed to score your friends on merits such as whether or not they are religious enough or drink enough for the Blue Zones project's tastes, whether they weigh too much or are too depressed, how on earth this is conducive to a sense of community and putting your friends and family first, I cannot fathom. It's basically rate your friends and then ditch them if they're not good enough Mm -hmm. for your longevity goals. Yeah. According to this exceptionally flawed and really unscientific survey. Should we do this with our family members as well? Just cut people out? Yeah. You you can't come to the destination room table. (laughs) You didn't drink enough today. Not till you lose five pounds. (laughs) Lose five pounds and drink two beers. (laughs) Crucially, the experts conducting the review of these checklists concluded that, quote, There is little theoretical underpinning associated with the items presented in each of the four checklists, in addition to a paucity of research supporting the evaluation of the checklists. And I have to agree. Yes. In essence, that's just a very polite academic way of saying... It's nonsense. It's based on nothing. Yeah. I didn't end up turning up any research on Blue Zones in Los Angeles. There was a paucity of research on Fort Worth too. And the best the documentary shows us is some news reports which use statistics from a Gallup poll. Butner uses these same results, saying that Gallup calculated that we saved the city more than a quarter of a billion dollars a year on projected healthcare costs. Now, Gallup is not a scholarly institution, but a global, privately owned management consulting company which primarily deals in opinion polls. And for what it's worth, their predictions aren't always accurate, shall we say. In 2008, Gallup was ranked 17 out of just 23 polling organisations in terms of its precision. In 2012, they predicted that Romney would win the election, likely because of the underweighting of black and Hispanic voters who tended to support Obama. Of course, predicting the behaviour of millions of voters is exceptionally difficult. But in an election, you essentially only have two possible outcomes in the US, a Republican or a Democrat win. Predicting the health behaviours of a large group of people is even more challenging to get right. You aren't just talking about predicting what people will do on one specific day. You're trying to predict what they will do every day for the rest of their lives. And of course, there is far, far more than two possible outcomes. So pinning a figure like a quarter of a billion dollars a year is always going to be subject to an extreme margin of error. More pertinently, why would you ask a management consulting company instead of a university to lead this research. 
But of course, even if we assume this figure is true, the saving only applies if people actually stick to these principles. And that's where I found some research on Iowa. The best that I could find on Iowa, you might remember he's claimed that they did an intervention in the entire state of mm -hmm. Iowa, was a 10-week project that was conducted by two students. Now, while obviously it's limited in scope, their thesis accurately points out that while the project claims to be community-based, not all inhabitants participated. And rather than the bottom-up action that Butner advocates, at least verbally, it's a project which seeks to impose the ideas that he has drawn from the blue zones he has visited into Iowa using a top-down mindset. In the empirical section of their thesis, the student researchers Florian Albron and Vincent Wallstra provide an exceptionally useful overview of the organization of the Blue Zones project in Cedar Falls, Iowa. They state that Dan Butner founded Blue Zones LLC as an organization to control the ideology of the Blue Zones, the Power Nine, so the recommendations from the book, which is also trademarked, and then started a partnership with the organization Healthways in order to bring the project to American communities. Healthways leads all the Blue Zones communities in the US and is the owner of the Blue Zones project branding. Healthways, in connection with Blue Cross Shield, funds and organises the Blue Zones project in most areas. Have you ever heard of Blue Cross Shield? I have not. So it might be familiar to our American listeners, but for the rest of us, Blue Cross Shield, commonly called the Blues, is a super organization of health insurance companies in the United States. Blue Cross started out as a plan to guarantee teachers 21 days of hospital care a year for $6 back in 1929. Ten years later, Blue Shield was started by lumber and mining camp employees who paid a monthly fee to physicians. In the 1960s, the government partnered with Blue Cross and Blue Shield to administer Medicare. As social welfare plans, organisations administering Blue Cross Blue Shield were tax-exempt until a 1986 reform revoked that exemption because they were selling commercial-type insurance. And in 1994, the Blue Cross Blue Shield changed to allow for-profit corporations as licensees. The parent company of Blue Cross Blue Shield in several states nearly doubled its income to $1.09 billion, beginning several years of billion dollar profits. So you can see how this very small kind of teachers union, lumber and mining camp employees couple of groups has changed dramatically over the past hundred years. And it sounds like they've created a, an organization that represents their clients that want to look like they're doing something for community and this is an opportunity for some PR. Yes, I think you're probably right. <laughs> yeah, actually, you've preempted exactly the reasoning. In Iowa, the local Blue Cross Shield branch is called Wellmark. In 1989, several Iowan Blue Cross and Blue Shield organizations merged with those of South Dakota. When the 1994 change permitting licensees to be for profit corporations came into effect, the joint service agreement Blue Cross of South Dakota and South Dakota Blue Shield had expired, pitting them against each other. Wellmark is Iowa's dominant insurer now. In 2014, the Wellmark Health Plan of Iowa had to refund 
$651,895 to customers because it was not adhering to the rule which requires insurers spend at least 80% of the dollars that they collect in premiums on patient care and quality improvement activities. This is why they needed the PR. Ah, no, they, they didn't necessarily need the PR, they're mandated to spend this money. Well, yes, that too. In 2010, Wellmark opened its $250 million headquarters, meanwhile raising its premiums by double-digit percentages. Okay, that's why they needed the PR. Mm. Hundreds of Iowan residents expressed rate increase weariness, with some people's premiums increasing almost 50% between 2010 and 2013, which Iowans considered especially egregious considering the chairman was receiving an annual salary of $3.1 million. So it's hardly surprising that a company in trouble for not spending enough on improvement activities, with a bunch of customers who are dissatisfied by sky-high rate increases, a commercial interest in lowering insurance claims, and operating under a name that incorporates the word blue, might be highly attracted to a Blue Zones project. The thesis reports that Wellmark funded the Iowan Blue Zones project from 2012 to 2014 to the tune of $22 million, designating 10 big cities and 10 small cities Blue Zones communities. So it sounds like a lot of money, $22 million. But when you consider that it was over two years, that's only $11 million per year. And when you consider the number of locations... 20 locations. That's less than... It's, you know, it's just, just a over a million dollars per location. No, it's 10 big and 10 small. Oh, yeah. So it's about half a million dollars per location mm. per year. The Cedar Falls Blue Zone was provided with six full-time employees and, in addition, a further Power 9 group of unpaid members, plus 10 interns and several volunteers also supported the project. In total, there were 30 members of the team, nine of whom actually received payment for full-time work. As of 2014, though, the funding dried up, and the Cedar Falls project entered what was described as the sustainability phase. To deal with the lack of resources, the project merged with the Blue Zones project in their sister city of Waterloo, forming the Cedar Valley Blue Zones project. But Waterloo has a much larger, much more diverse population, and what few resources remained in the two locations became extremely stretched. The Power Nine groups were also reformed into a smaller advisory board of 15 people, which meets just quarterly. Even the most invested full-time interns were leaving by the time the student investigators began their research, commenting that a lot of the enthusiasm had been lost and volunteer numbers had dramatically reduced, as had engagement on social media. The main goal of the remaining team was not to continue making improvements, but simply to maintain what had been built over the two years of funding. The staff had been reduced to two part-time employees, who between them shared just 20 hours of work per week. One reported that she spent the majority of her 10 hours a week writing grant applications, desperately trying to get money for the necessary supplies. 
The other split her 10 hours a week across all of the work sites, restaurants, schools, churches and other organisations in both cities connected to the project. It seems the project had developed a number of checklists that organisations could go through to be recognised as a Blue Zones employer or church, etc. However, the researchers note that it was often much easier for the largest organisations with the most resources to implement the changes that were required to gain approval, while small shops and church groups the very sorts of community-driven places you would think that Blue Zones would support, the faith-based groups and the small grocers, found it difficult or even impossible to accumulate the required number of points. While some organisations truly cared and made a big effort, interviews with staff revealed that the checklists had items that allowed some organisations to just go through the motions to receive a plaque. For example, checking a box for having a walking path simply because they had pavement outside. While some organisations like Orange Elementary School state that the project was the catalyst for some changes to their dietary practices, overall, the impression four years after the project was initially rolled out was that the funded period was not long enough to make the required sustainable change. The researchers distinguished between the imagined community of practice as presented in the literature, who consciously strive to implement the Blue Zones principles, and then the majority of the residents who probably know of the project and may even have signed a pledge to participate, but have not consciously made lifestyle adjustments. In Cedar Falls, Cars continue to be the main form of transportation, not walking, not biking, or even public transportation. Although one interviewee noted that there had been a greater push for more bike lanes over the past few years. Though it doesn't sound as if she rides a bike herself, she says she thinks that it's getting more popular. Some people work out, but as the thesis authors note, this does not constitute moving naturally. Exercise is still not engineered into people's lives unless it is to walk their dog, which also allowed people to downshift. Knowing your purpose proved an even more challenging point to implement, as I'm sure you can guess. One Blue Zones volunteer estimated that 85% of those who had signed up and pledged to live according to the Blue Zones principles would not know how to answer that question. The student researchers found this estimate was indeed borne out by their own interviews. The next three principles of the Power Nine all fall under eating wisely, which the researchers describe as the most tangible goal, which of course we saw in the documentary as well, that's why they keep focusing on it. One workplace introduced healthier, lighter foods in line with the plant slant. The university switched food trays for plates to encourage the 80% rule, but the third principle, wine at five, proved controversial, as we kind of predicted. Because most people in Cedar Falls by this point did not consider drinking alcohol to be a healthy activity. It seems that I'm not the only one who finds this suggestion problematic. The researchers explained that alcohol addiction and drunk driving were significant issues in Cedar Falls, which made people want to fight drinking rather than engage in its promotion. In my view, this reinforces the author's conclusion that the project can hardly be described as community-driven.
The final three principles relate to communities and belonging. The student authors describe the importance of family in Cedar Falls as having two faces. While many people consider family important and view the town as a good place to raise children, in most cases, residents' attitudes or reality is better described as job first, family second. Additionally, family importance in Cedar Falls had little to do with valuing the wisdom of one's elders and more to do with trying to give one's children a better life, often through competitive sports, classes and other activities. Belonging to a faith-based community appeared easier to achieve in Cedar Falls, though it is not mentioned whether church attendance increased. I imagine that people of faith simply continued their regular spiritual practices. Again, moais based on walking, cycling or snowshoeing were developed, which the students suggest fulfills the right tribe principle. Which leads me to another thought. Given that in the Netflix series, Butner describes the right tribe in terms of people who can better you, who are healthy and whose healthy habits can influence you, wouldn't that make it impossible to organise an entire town into small groups that fit the right tribe definition? Are smokers, for example, excluded from these groups lest their unhealthy habits spread? Are lonely people or fat people? All of these conditions were singled out in the episode on the right tribe as potentially contagious to others in your circle. It's really weird that, that basically if you have a problem, say in Butner's view, you mm -hmm. are overweight and this is an issue, mm -hmm. you should strive to have underweight friends as good role models or whatever mm -hmm. but does this mean that but they should be like trying to avoid you exactly it's strange yeah mm. we're trying to create one-way relationships precisely which means that you you don't want the whole community engaged you only want those people mm -hmm. that need the help engaged mm -hmm. exactly Finally, the students make the superb point that the Blue Zones principles are based on a foreign ageing process or processes which may not be applicable to Midwestern US culture. This was something highlighted by Durwatcher too, though these researchers address opposite sides of the same coin. While Durwatcher is concerned about the degree to which adjusting the Blue Zones principles to suit a Western audience may resemble cultural appropriation, and Marston and colleagues also expressed concerns about the extent to which the Blue Zones project checklists might or might not be applicable to those of us who live outside of the United States, Albronda and Wallstra are primarily concerned with the extent to which these foreign-derived principles could possibly work in the United States. In particular, they describe how infrastructure in the US is completely different. While this was touched upon in the Netflix series, Buner spends most of his time informing his audience about Singapore, probably assuming that most of their viewers were going to be familiar with the situation in the States. But I think it's really worth considering Albronda and Wallstra's description of Cedar Falls. Most people drive from the age of 16 because the town is designed for cars. Cars are so much a part of daily life that the post office, grocery store, restaurants, pharmacy and ATMs all have drive-through lanes. And residents report that most people prefer this lifestyle and only a minority want it to change. Obviously, adding a few bike lanes around the woods means very little when so much of the town's commerce is centred around cars. A much, much bigger, 
more fundamental change is necessary. One that would not just cost millions of dollars in physical infrastructure changes, but more importantly, a massive shift in the city's economic system. Part of the reason for people's reluctance to stop driving is the time pressures they experience. As one of the church pastors noted, American work culture pushes people to work beyond a healthy number of hours. And just because a city or even a state might decide to implement a Blue Zones program, or just because you as an individual decide to sign a pledge, does not mean that you can say no to your boss regarding working overtime, or that you'll be able to pay your rent without picking up an extra shift. Time pressure also influences people's preferences regarding prepared meals versus cooking from scratch, let alone growing their own food and grinding their own corn. Additionally, the students point out that the weather is extremely unreliable in Cedar Falls from November to April every year, with hail and temperatures below zero degrees Celsius one day and above 20 with strong winds the next, making cars an attractive protection. These conditions also make locally grown fruits and vegetables fluctuate a lot in price. And if we think back to the types of environments that we've seen all of these blue zones, they're all pretty temperate places. Okinawa is, you know, famously the Hawaii of Japan. Sardinia, Ikaria, these are Mediterranean places with pretty moderate, you know, mild kinds of temperatures. Uh, Loma Linda is in California. Where else did we have? Costa Rica, Costa where, we Rica where we currently are, again, is like 25 degrees all year round. It's very predictable, stable temperature. To try to deal with sub-zero degrees as well as heat and be in a place where you can't grow food very easily, that's not a blue zone. You can't just change the weather. As I mentioned previously, the Blue Zones project has been described as a neoliberal project. But I would, given what you've told me here, sort of disagree with that mm. because neoliberal would suggest there is a private-public partnership. But this seems a little bit more libertarian in the fact that it's all sort of private organisations sort of encouraging this stuff and trying to push their ideas. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So even with these top-down approaches that are temporarily funded by the insurance companies, they really are seeking to push responsibility for health onto the individual because it's a profit margin for them, right? Exactly. Workplaces offer people healthier choices whether or not they take them up the company ticks a box and gets a little plaque. The city installs bike lanes, but nobody does anything about the peculiarly American absurdity that is drive-through everything. And it seems that they're not making the bike lanes helpful for people to get from home to work, but more so just scenic places you might go on a weekend, which again is not incidental exercise. Yes, if you want to use get you know people to have these incidental exercises you can't just move their houses closer to work so that they can cycle there mm-hmm. you need to provide infrastructure such as public transportation you yes. need to make sure people aren't going to freeze in the cold yeah yeah so those covered walkways that they have in singapore could help with this places that you can store your bike both going to and from work in conjunction with 
bus stops or train stops or whatever. Cars are so essential to life in the United States that many states allow people to drive from the age of just 16. That's even younger than in Australia, which is also a heavily car-based society. The vast majority of nations require a driver to be 18. That's true here in Costa Rica. It's true of Greece, Japan, Italy, Singapore. Allowing children to drive not only normalizes driving as the primary mode of transport, but it allows cities to cater exclusively to cars to the extreme detriment of pedestrians and cyclists. And while we're on the topic of driving, I thought we'd take a look at the laws regarding drinking and driving. All of the blue zones permit a blood alcohol content, or BAC, of 0.05. And in some cases, like in Japan, it is much lower. In the United States, however, it's 0.08, including in Iowa. The only blue zone candidate which allows the same level is Singapore, where it is very strictly enforced. And in any case, as Butner mentions, there are only like 12 cars per 100 residents. Public transport is excellent and frequently used there. So if you've had too much to drink, it's easy and affordable to make your way home by other means. In the United States, however, the number of cars is growing faster than the number of people. There are 83.7 cars per 100 people in the United States. So for every person old enough to drive, there is more than one registered vehicle in the United States. While the student researchers remain positive about the Blue Zones initiative, my overall impression of the interviews they conducted with the people on the ground is that implementing the principles that Butner identified which, as we've seen, was selected seemingly on the basis of his own personal bias from a cherry-picked group of locations without a consistent application of methodology, proved more challenging than the Netflix documentary lets on. And I think back to that Gallup report that Butner cited in relation to Fort Worth. If cities can truly expect to save a quarter of a billion dollars a year through participating in the Blue Zones program, why on earth would insurance companies halt funding after just a couple of years? It wouldn't make any economic sense to only have to put in a half a million dollar a year investment and receive a quarter of a billion dollars, which is 250 million in response. I don't like insurance companies. I don't believe at all in private health insurance as a concept. But there is something that I do trust insurance companies on, and that is projecting whether they are going to make a profit or a loss on something. It's kind of their entire deal. If the Blue Zones initiative worked the wonders that are claimed, then surely the insurance companies would invest what is, in the scheme of things, a tiny amount of money to keep these principles alive in order to save the massive amount of money that they're claiming they're saving. The end of the series, however, begins with Butner launching a plan in Phoenix, Arizona. It is a hopeful message. Within 10 years, Butner claims that America could be a blue zone. All we have to do is shift the focus from thinking that we're going to change 350 million people's minds to changing their environment. But as we've seen from the areas in which the Blue Zones project has already been tried and come up against stumbling blocks, the barriers are immense. They require not only changes to the physical environment, but changes to the economy and to politics. And that seems to be the shame of this last episode. He seems to come so close 
uh, with his trip to Singapore with the takeaway message that it seems that policy is the important thing. But then we're going straight back to these individual checklists of are you getting enough booze into you each day to get your five points? Mm-hmm. You really do need societal change and the best way to get that is through political change. As an individual, if you want to take away any kind of lessons from this at all, the idea that you can do so without changing your thinking is absolute folly in my opinion. None of this is sustainable unless you have the mentality behind it. I mean, it seems like if Butner could have his way, he'd get rid of everyone's garage doors openers so that they have to pull them up themselves, get rid of their washing machines so they have to scrub their things. But even things like saying, you know, get rid of your garage door opener implies that you are still going to have a car-based lifestyle. Exactly. It is putting a Band-Aid on an amputated leg. This is not how to fix things. You need Mm. to get away from the mentality that driving a car is normal or desirable. And I think 10 years is very much too optimistic a time frame when you're talking about how the suburbs have been designed in America. You're not going to change the single family dwellings into medium density housing overnight. To have public transport that's efficient from that kind of suburb design to the urban centers where people work and study and everything like that, is not going to happen. It's a decades-long project. Singapore did not do this stuff overnight. No, even with their very heavy-handed public system of taking back land from private institutions, it took them a long time still to do this. And Singapore is often described as a nanny state. It's much more authoritarian than what the government in the United States is. It's a much more hands-on government. I don't think that the United States would be ready for or accept that style of government that is necessary in order to achieve what Singapore has done. The United States has not been able to get rid of guns, for example. They haven't been able to implement sensible gun control. They haven't been able to implement um, universal health care. Yeah, two exceptionally basic things that the vast majority of other countries have been able to achieve of similar wealth and and size because there is a very, very different demographic and culture in the United States, an identity that is bound up in the Constitution, which many people interpret to mean that you have a right to bear arms. I don't think that other countries are as wedded to their Constitution as what the United States is. Um, Most people don't care about what it contains, don't even know what it is. Most Australians, I would imagine, know way more about the US Constitution and can even quote parts of it, including the amendments, but have no idea whether their own country even has a constitution, and if so, what it says. Even though we just had a referendum to change the constitution. (laughs) Yes. But you mentioned the 10 years being optimistic, and I think there's another reason. Even if we put aside you know, whether or not America is a more or less difficult place to transform, we've already seen from the track record that America's life expectancy, although it started out at about the same as Australia and Singapore in 1950, has increased much less than either of those two nations have. So even if we set aside, though, that track record, and imagine that they can implement all of the changes starting tomorrow, I still think that this goal is impossible. If we look at 
the original definition of a blue zone, i.e. somewhere that has an unusually high concentration of centenarians. To get to the point that you are having the currently 90-year-old people dramatically improving their longevity to the point that they're going to be over 100 in 10 years' time is practically impossible. I don't see how this can possibly work other than if we just say that the word blue zone means nothing, which I think that we have to conclude that it does. Blue zone really has just come to mean what Dan Butner thinks is healthy. It does not mean living to over 100 because we've seen time and time again in three out of the six blue zones, the definition was not based on people living to over 100. And we also know that it's not about zones either. Because if it were, you couldn't have a personal blue zone, you couldn't try to transport a blue zone to another country, and as we saw with Loma Linda, it was not actually Loma Linda itself, but Adventists. It's a faith-based rather than a geographically-based definition. So over the course of the series, I feel that the definition of blue zones got watered down so much that it's completely irrelevant. So irrelevant that I basically forgot to critique how impossible this goal is because saying something is or isn't a blue zone is meaningless. So that all being said, Simon, what lessons have you taken away from this discussion? Well, if I personally want to live longer because I'm afraid of dying, I should probably buy some beans and honey from their website. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, I think my personal takeaway message has been not to worry about this stuff. Time and time again, when we heard from real live centenarians, their basic message was not to stress. And the same was true of the experts that were interviewed. Stress and worry was probably the main factor that was pointed out. And as I looked into the research on it, it's something that really does have a huge impact on your life and your longevity. So to me, I think that's the most important and most actionable factor. Yes, individually, don't worry so much about what you eat. Don't worry so much about your exercise. Don't worry about your waistband. Try to reduce your stress levels. And on the more societal level, maybe mm, try and improve the healthcare of people, people's access to healthcare, mm -hmm. the overall richness of your population. Mm -hmm.